Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Independent Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Tom Rochelle, Head of Multimedia at The Independent. Now, this podcast is usually about getting behind the headlines and drilling down into the issues that we're all experiencing. Today, however, the show is a little different. I'm joined by writer and actor Kevin Child to discuss a brand new podcast series which The Independent is launching this week. Uh, hi, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Hi, Tom. Um, very happy to be here, too. Thank you for, uh, for asking me. So this new series is called Passion and the Plague. Uh, so interesting name. Well, why don't you start by giving us like a brief overview of what the podcast is all about? Basically, the podcast is 10 stories that are taken from this book written uh, nearly 700 years ago called The Decameron. And uh, they're, they're stories of all sorts of different kind of episodes and uh, all sorts of different things that happen to people uh, in their daily lives. Uh, a lot of them are very funny. A lot of them are extremely rude. Uh, and they're very romantic. There's all sorts of different, uh, great variety of, of uh, um, uh, themes, I think, attached to it. And the reason why I was fascinated by this project was because it was all compiled and written during the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century. And uh, it seemed that there was a very strong correlation between what was happening then and what's happening now. So uh, everyone was self-isolating, everyone was terrified, and nobody wanted to go out and meet other people. And um, the, the stories were, were, were compiled really by this man called Giovanni Boccaccio um, in order to entertain people while they were, uh, they were on their own, effectively. Um, and to help really with their mental health, I think is one, I mean, the, the concept of mental health probably didn't exist in the 14th mm. century, but that's effectively what he's doing. He's trying to kind of take people out of themselves and put them in a different world. Uh, but also there's this sort of what, what I also was very um, uh, fascinated by was there is this strong specter of death over all of these stories. In fact, there's always a sense that there's something bad out there and that we need to kind of uh, keep as far away from as possible. Mm. So that was that, that was the kind of thinking behind it. Um, yeah podcast together you mentioned there uh, that the stories were were compiled by uh, Giovanni Boccaccio uh, who was he um, and what's his relevance to the book he's really kind of one of the three great writers of the early Italian Renaissance there's Boccaccio there's Dante uh, who wrote the Divine Comedy and there's Petrarch who kind of invents the sonnet and various other kind of poetic forms 
Um, and they're all writing in the early part of the 14th century going into the later part of the 14th century. So he's probably the most eclectic of them in that he wrote about all sorts of different things. His most famous book is the Decameron, um, but uh, he's, a, he's a bit of a kind of poly everything, you know, he writes about so many different types of things. He's a jack of all trades. <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, and I think certainly in the early part of his writing career, we'd probably describe him as a bit of a hack, in fact, um, as a result. Um, and it's the Decameron that makes him famous. But he's uh, he, he's born in Florence, uh, which was the sort of becoming the center of this, this, this thing we now call the Renaissance. He was um, taken by his father to Naples when he was quite young. So he was actually brought up in Naples. He, his father was a banker. He tried his hand at banking, didn't like that. So he studied law at the university, didn't like that either. And eventually decided he was going to become a poet um, and struggled quite a lot with that too. Apparently he fell in love with one of the daughters of the King of Naples, which didn't really help because she wasn't particularly available to him. Um, and eventually he returns to Florence where he happens to be in the spring of 1348 when some poor person walks through the gates of Florence carrying the plague with them uh, and it then spreads like wildfire throughout the city and, uh, and he's prompted probably while he's in isolation to sort of think what what can I do about this how do I how do I respond to the terrible things that are happening around me and that's what prompted him to write the, the Decameron in the first place. The book itself um, his involvement was there but it was written by a group of people is that right? Well, essentially, he takes stories from all over the place um, and recasts them. And some of the stories he probably invented himself, but there's a hundred stories. So effectively, what happens is a bunch of uh, friends, there are 10 of them, uh, decide to flee Florence and go and hole up in a country house uh, in order to avoid the plague. And to entertain themselves, they decide they're all going to tell each other stories. And each, each of the characters ten, tells 10 stories a day so you end up with a hundred stories and these stories come from China they come they originate in the the Arab world they originate in all, part, all parts of, of um, Europe uh, and some he almost certainly made up himself too but they would have therefore partly been familiar to some of his readers at the time but he recasts them uh, he often kind of takes something that was originally set in Baghdad for example and moves it to somewhere in Italy uh, and uh, kind of Italianizes it. Uh, but they also, the stories take place all over the place, North Africa, um, France, Germany, and the, the, there's no, it's a very kind of, uh, uh, um, it, it's a very, uh, I'm trying to think what the word is, a uh, universal story, a collection of stories. And people might be familiar, more familiar with something like the Canterbury Tales, which is a similar collection of stories within yes. a story, Chaucer, uh, almost certainly influenced, in fact, by Boccaccio, because they lived, they kind of coincided for a few years um, in terms of their, when they were living. Uh, or the Thousand and One Nights, which is the, a much older version of this stories within a story type of um, book. So that's that's the sort of structure of it. That's that's how it was uh, it was put together. Mm. And you mentioned that death is sort of the overarching theme of the book. Uh, what other sort of main themes do we see creeping into all these stories? Um, 
Well, I think a lot of people in self-isolation then and probably now had a lot of sex on their minds. There's a lot of sex involved, <laughs> uh, various different forms. And um, I think there's uh, one of the big themes that really struck me when I was reading through the stories, trying to decide which ones I'd, I'd, I'd translate and take out, uh, is this, this kind of desire for, to reach out to somebody else for companionship, for, uh, for sex possibly, for um, some kind of intimacy. And that's a very strong and powerful uh, element within the stories themselves. There's a yearning for other company of one form or another, um, which isn't surprising given the context in which it was, it was created. Um, there's uh, the way that people adopt different types of behaviors in order to cope. But these, these, what is really interesting about the Decameron is Prior to this, really, a lot of the kind of tales you associate with the Middle Ages are about kind of knights and daring do and maidens in distress. You think of the kind of Arthurian legends, for example. These are very, very different. They're about kind of people living in cities, doing jobs like trading in cloth or being bankers or being lawyers or you know, the, the, the daily life of your average city dweller, which is, I think, what makes them very modern in a way, and he's writing way before his time in, in some circumstances. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of attracted me to it because you can recognize a lot of the, the characters in this now. They're, they're very similar. We haven't changed that much, in fact. Um, so it, it, it has a very different, very modern feel to it from the more traditional stories. Some of the stories are actually quite traditional in terms of the, uh, the, there's a lot of kind of magic involved. There's um, there are knights and battles and things like that too, but the the main feeling I get from the Decameron is is it's it's it's, it's an urban collection of stories about people who live in cities, basically. And and um, was that the sort of key detail that you were looking for when you trawled through all one hundred stories to select the ten that we'd be hearing for this podcast? Uh, yes, I think it probably was. But I also wanted. I wanted variety. I didn't want them to all be too similar. So I have included uh, uh, a story about a knight who goes off on the crusades, for example, or uh, somebody who, who goes to, to, to Naples in order to try and buy horses and ends up having all sorts of terrible um, things happening to him as a result. So it, it, there's, a, there's a lovely variety in this. Um, uh, which is what I was really aiming for. But also I wanted to kind of push home this idea that these are very modern stories. They, they could, similar things could happen to people right now in any city across the globe. Yeah, the, their sort of, um, their timelessness struck me while I was listening to them. Um, so uh, spoiler alert, we're gonna hear a clip from the series now. So any listeners uh, who, who, who don't wanna hear this, maybe skip forward a couple of minutes. Uh, this is from episode four in our series, um, Passion and the Plague. So, Kevin, do you want to set the scene for us here and just sort of um, set up this clip? Yes, um, Torello is a sort of perfect knight. He's a, a, a very lovely gentleman who's very kind of generous and kind and wants to, goes out of his way in order to try and help people. And as it happens, he, uh, he, he, he encounters on the road... Um, an actual historical figure, Saladin, who's one of these very famous people from the Crusades, on the uh, uh, who's in disguise. He's basically spying around Italy, trying to work out what people are doing. 
um, and Torello's very, very kindly takes him in and gives him all sorts of hospitality. And then many, many years, well, not many years later, not long after he ends up in the, during the crusade, he ends up being captured and he's taken to Egypt where Saladin is the Sultan. And he is, um, he's recognized Saladin helps him, gives him all sorts of kind of position in his court. Um, but before he'd left, Torello had uh, got his wife to make a promise that she wouldn't remarry. If she heard nothing from him, for, she wouldn't remarry for a year and a day. Um, uh, no, a year, a week and a day, I think it is actually. And uh, he suddenly realizes that she's heard nothing from him and that it's getting very close to that, the end of that period that she promised she wouldn't remarry him if she thought he was dead. And so uh, Saladin basically helps him to get back to Italy as quickly as is possible using not a magic flying carpet, but a magic flying bed in this boat. Uh, and this is then what happens uh, when he encounters his wife. After a while, Torello took hold of the ring which she had given him the day he left. And gesturing to one of the servants who were waiting at table, he said, Tell the bride with my compliments that in my country, whenever a stranger comes to a bridal feast, it is customary for the bride to send a cup from which she's been drinking filled with wine to show that he's welcome. Once the stranger has drunk his fill, the bride drinks what is left. The youth took this message to the lady, who ordered that a great golden cup be filled with wine and given to Torello. Torello had placed the ring in his mouth and drank from the cup, letting it fall into the wine without anyone seeing. Leaving a little wine in the bottom, he returned the cup. Then the lady raised the cup to her lips as he had requested and saw the ring. She recognised it, picked it out, and began to stare at the apparent stranger. Now she saw who he was, and as though she had gone mad, she overturned the table and cried out, It is my lord! This truly is Torello! Okay, so that was a clip from episode four of uh, Passion and the Plague. Uh, it's beautifully read, that particular episode, I think, Kevin. Um, who are we hearing there? Uh, that's uh, Janine Alfane. She's uh, um, originally from South Africa, but she's been a, an actress in London for quite some time. Um, and is I think she's rather brilliant. Uh, she does, I think, quite a lot of this sort of voiceover type work. She has this beautiful, resonant voice in any case. Uh, yes, it is, it is one of the kind of, uh, one of my favourite episodes, I think. It's one of my favourite stories, too, because so much happens in it as well. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And who else can we sort of look forward to hearing as well? Um, we, I mean, the, the names that people will know will be Lindsay Duncan and uh, Hilton McRae. We both agreed to read stories uh, and they do it fantastically well as well. Um, we have uh, three actors from this rather wonderful um, group who are most famous in the, as, as uh, performance artists. They're called Forced Entertainment. Um, Claire Marshall, um, Kathy Naden and Richard Loden, who uh, each tell a story as well. Uh, we have the Sam, who's Sam Fairbrother, who's one of the, the youngest of the actors. He's literally just out of um, drama school, I think. Um, and uh, he, he he has one of my favorite stories as well. It's, it's, it's one of the ruder ones, so I'm not going to go into details about it <laughs> now. But uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great tale, and he tells it very well. And this whole series has been put together remotely with these uh, actors voicing up these stories from their self-isolations. Uh, logistically, what does that look like for you trying to organize that, but also for them as well? I, I, I thought it, it, it was been a challenge. Um, I was worried about the, the, the quality of recording, for example, but it really, I mean, being under a duvet, it does get a bit hot being under a duvet, it has to be said, but being under a duvet, even just using an, uh, uh, an iPhone or something like that with a sock over it, which kind of acts as a, to, to try and uh, get rid of some of the, um, the, the unnecessary noises. Uh, you can actually end up with pretty good quality sound. Um, there are various apps that people were able to download, which um, allow you to kind of, again, record good sound as opposed to just doing it on the, the ordinary phone recording system. Um, so in, in the end, that wasn't so worrying. And some people use laptops, some people had microphones, actual microphones, which was uh, obviously you get a better sound quality than that in any case. Um, the main problem for me was uh, it's really hard sort of directing people when they're, you're not there. <laughs> so I listened to the recordings they sent back and then I'd have to go back and give them notes effectively via email or phone them up and say, you know, you said it in that way. Actually, it might be better if you tried a different way or, um, or the, you know, and the, the, the main note I want, I gave everybody before I started was I didn't really want it to sound like they were reading an ebook. I wanted it to sound like they were characters in a drama telling a story. Um, and that was the most important thing as far as I was concerned. So uh, I suppose that, um, that the strength of the story will enable that process. I mean, you have translated and yeah. shortened all of these stories that people will be hearing in the podcast. Um, that must have been a pretty um, exhausting process as well. Uh, it was drove me a bit mad. I mean, I, I, first of all, I thought I'll just use existing translations, but then we end up with copyright issues, for example, which we didn't want. And also, uh, all of the translations I read, they're a bit kind of Victorian. There's lots of these and vows, and um, you know, Alfred Lord Tennyson could have written it or something like that. <laughs> and I wanted it to sound much more modern. 
So uh, I thought, well, I'll just translate them myself and translate them into a modern idiom and use modern slang and things like that. So it's, they feel much more now than um, a lot of the translations that I read. Um, one of the other interesting things about 14th century Italian is that uh, I don't know if anybody's sort of familiar with Chaucer's English. It feels like a different language sometimes to modern English, whereas 14th century Italian is not that different from modern Italian. So it's actually much easier to understand and much easier to translate as a result. There aren't kind of too many impossible words or constructs that don't make any sense if you know modern Italian. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was quite a sort of hill to climb, but I enjoyed doing it. It was actually very, um, quite, you know, <laughs> a lot of my work has disappeared <laughs> over the last, <laughs> and this gave me something to do amongst other things. And that's one of the reasons why the actors wanted to be involved too, because there is no theater, there is no TV going on, worth speaking of. And uh, they had no choice other than to be at home and try and work out what they can do with themselves while they're at home. And I think this gave them a focus. It was actually quite helpful for them and also for me as well. You mentioned there how you sort of brought these stories into modern language. How much, um liberty are you able to take with with the sentence structure and the language itself in order to do that i think you can take a fair amount as long as you don't change the story and as long as you keep a feel of the the language that he uses um which as i said you know a modern italian would understand perfectly well anyway um it's uh, i think you're allowed a certain amount of leeway uh he has his own version of 14th century slang for example which if it was translated literally wouldn't make sense at all to a modern english listener so you have to kind of change that and modernize it in, in any case um, but rather than using modern slang words a lot of the translations i read used kind of it sounded like a victorian slang or something like that so it didn't make sense to me to, to go down that route and uh yeah, and it, it, it also adapting them. Um, some of them needed to be cut a little bit. Um, some of them, uh, I don't think I changed any of the stories. They're all basically as he wrote it, effectively. Um, and some of the stories are actually quite well known through different versions. Like, for example, we have a story which Keats, the poet, English, the English poet John Keats, then adapted into one of his most famous poems. Um, so they're, they're quite, in one context, some of the stories are quite already quite well known in any case. And so you can't really take that many liberties with them. Mm. Um, but I, the main thing is I just wanted them to, to resonate and sound right for a modern audience rather than put a barrier up through the language effectively. Um, and I haven't, as I said, I haven't really changed the stories themselves. They're effectively exactly as he wrote them. And this, this idea of the, uh, of the 10 friends all sort of holed up in the house together, those sort of narrated bits of the sections that, that you present within the podcast yeah. itself. Uh, and I guess that many people across the country today will find themselves in relatively similar situations. Uh, maybe they're not writing stories, but they're trying to entertain each other, whether it's yeah. family or friends, all in a very similar situation today in our as you describe it in the show, our 21st century version of the play. Absolutely. Um, 
they didn't have Netflix in the 14th century <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that. So they had to. Well, they wouldn't have got the book if they had. <laughs> book, exactly. Um, although maybe he'd have been a screenwriter, I don't know. Um, so the, the, they had to entertain themselves. Um, telling stories was, uh, was, was one of the ways that people did in those days. It's, it's, somebody said to me, it's a little, when, she, when they were reading through these, the, the stories I, I uh, translated, it's a little bit like sitting around a campfire listening to people telling the stories, um, except we're not around a campfire, we're, we're in our kitchens listening to whatever. Um, and, but it has that sort of sense of uh, that intimacy about it as well, I feel, which is one of the things I liked about the whole process of, of recording, translating recording, and then eventually podcasting all of these stories. It, they have a kind of intimacy, which I like. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Kevin has also written um, a, uh, an article for The Independent, which is on our website now and will be linked in the description of this podcast. Uh, Passionate and the Plague uh, launches on Wednesday, the 20th uh, of May. Uh, before we leave, a reminder that you can get in touch with the podcast team here to ask questions or suggest future subjects for discussion. So please email the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk. Alternatively, you can use the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast. That's Indie with a Y. Uh, you can, uh, of course, also read all about the COVID-19 pandemic as it unfolds on our website, uh, independent.co.uk. There's also a new email newsletter you could sign up to if you want the latest news and advice delivered to your inbox daily. And there's more information about that on our website. Also, you can subscribe to this series and also Passion and the Plague on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment if you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.